1: Hi, hey, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Last Sunday, Colombians voted in the first round of presidential elections. Left leaning opposition politician Gustavo Petro won the most votes, about 40%. He'd been expecting to do well thanks to an outpouring of anti establishment sentiment. More of a surprise was second-place candidate Rodolfo Hernández. Hernández is another outsider. He's sort of a right-wing populist, though one that's quite hard to define. He mostly eschewed formal campaigning. He didn't participate in the presidential debates. Instead, he's appealed to voters via social media, earning himself the name the TikTok King. We heard one of his videos up top, in which he jokes he's too old for the social media platform.
2: The leftist presidential candidate, Gustavo Petro, will face off against
1: right-wing businessman Rodolfo Hernández in a runoff election in June. On Sunday, Petro won the first round with just over 40% of the vote falling short of the 50% needed to avoid a runoff. Hernández will compete against Petro in the runoff in a couple of weeks on the 19th of June. The man Hernández beat for second place, Federico Gutiérrez, or Fico, has thrown his weight and the weight of Colombia's political establishment behind Hernández. That probably makes the TikTok king favourite to win Colombia's presidency. So who is Rodolfo Hernandez? Are comparisons to former US President Donald Trump fair? Can he win? And if he does, what will he do about the inequality and corruption that drove countrywide protests last year? What about the violence that racks much of Colombia's countryside? Or prospects for negotiations with the ELN, Colombia's largest remaining guerrilla group? To talk about all this, I'm very happy to welcome back on Beth Dickinson, Crisis Group's Columbia expert, and Renata Segura, who's our deputy Latin America director. Beth, Renata, welcome back on.
2: Great to be here. Thanks, Richard. Thank you, Richard.
1: Let's talk first about uh, Rodolfo Hernandez. Uh, just uh, what? Just a few weeks ago, Rodolfo Hernandez didn't seem to be a serious contender, and now you know he might even be favourite to, to, to win the presidency.
0: So I think this this election um, really has has been a surprise from the beginning. It's the first time in a long time that Colombians have gone to the polls not knowing who was going to come out on top. And this first round result was no exception. I think what we expected was for this to be a contest between Gustavo Petro, the left-leaning former mayor of Bogota, who has pitched himself as sort of the outsider who's wanting to come in and shake things up, and very much an establishment candidate who was backed by all the traditional parties. I'm speaking of Federico Gutierrez. Um, instead, what we have is a result that elevates two candidates who are anti-establishment, two candidates whose entire persona is really built on, a, on speaking out against this elite that has long governed Colombia. So now instead of a contest between an insider and outsider, we have two outsiders um, speaking from slightly different perspectives, but both with a very populist tone that really captures the exasperation and economic frustration of the moment.
1: So maybe then let's talk first about uh, Rudolf Hernandez, because, you know, in some ways that was the, the surprise, right? So, I mean, who is he? Where did he come from? And how did he how did he manage to build what seems to have been a lot of momentum in the last few weeks of the campaign?
0: Well, Rodolfo is, is an interesting character because he was really someone that outside of his uh, town and in his department of Santander was very little known before this election happened. He is a businessman who was self-made in the sense that he came from very humble uh, upbringing in a place called Cuesta Santander, and has risen to become a multimillionaire property developer uh, who works on, on sort of land and um, and housing That's how he's he's earned his fortune and the way that he's connected with voters. It's been very interesting. He has gone to almost no campaign events. He has not joined any of the debates. Um, Instead, he has reached people on social media, so through TikTok, through messaging. And he has this ability to speak very rawly and capture some of the frustration that Colombians have with the current system. His talking point, above all others, is corruption. So his pledge for Colombia is to come in, root out corruption, tighten up the budgets, get things to work, not by increasing taxes or raising new revenue, but rather by stopping this this, uh, sort of leeching corruption from the system. He hasn't said much about how he's going to do that. Uh, but this message alone resonates so well, I think, with voters um, that he was able to pull off this win.
2: If I may just add one one small thing, I think that uh, something that is very important to understand why we're facing uh, this second round um, with these two unusual candidates is the demise of, Uri Vismo, of the right wing traditional um, political sector of the country that was more focused on law and order, that had really been uh, campaigning against the peace process.
1: And Uribismo, just so people know, that's politics sort of led by Álvaro Uribe, who was president, what, three presidents ago between 2002 and 2010, but has remained sort of extremely influential behind the scenes uh, since then.
2: Exactly, and perhaps this is the biggest change that this election is bringing to the political scene, is that Uribismo has lost a lot of its convening power. It's not by any means, we're not saying that Uribismo has disappeared, and really what's happening is that it's transforming. But really when we look at the results from FICO and, and their campaign, they really did not uh, win in many of the areas of the country where they had traditionally been a stronghold. So it really is an appending of the way in which politics has worked in Colombia for many years. And more importantly, as Beth was saying, the machinery, the clientelistic workouts that normally bring the voters out were absent this time around, at at least in the proportion that they normally are present
1: and uh, Uribe himself, as you say, he's sort of been been, been this enormously powerful figure behind uh, Ivan Duque, uh, current president. But he threw his weight, Uribe, behind uh, Gutiérrez, behind Fico, ahead of the first round.
2: Yes, I mean, Fico was definitely the official candidate. But because Uribe's standing in the popular opinion has been not as good in, in recent months, all of the candidates had been distancing themselves a little bit from them, in particular because the Duke administration is going out with really appalling rates of approval. So FICO wanted to make sure that people didn't see him as a continuation of that government. But everybody understood that FICO was the candidate that Uribe was supporting. Although the rumor mill says that in recent months when they were seeing that FICO was not gaining the traction that they wanted and that Hernandez was raising in the polls, they started behind the, um, closed doors doing some negotiating with Hernandez in case he was the one who came to the second round.
1: And although it's unexpected that he's going into the second round, Rodolfo Hernandez, he has been in politics for a while, right? I mean, he was what, mayor of the, the town. You talked about Beth Bucaramanga. What do we know about his sort of past track record in politics that could sort of say what sort of a president he might be?
0: So those who have worked with him in the past sort of describe him as a manager-in-chief. An executive personality very much used to being in charge and very much used to operating in a business environment. For example, uh, when he was discussing recently in an interview... Uh, possible negotiations with armed groups, for example, the ELN here, um, he suggested something that here is called an otro C, si, which is essentially uh, an addendum to a business agreement. So that in, instead of negotiating a new peace agreement, they could just add another part to the existing agreement with the FARC. I think that, that gives a sense into the way that he thinks about these issues is very much linked to his own experience as a businessman, which frankly has been quite isolated and linked to Santander. Another great example, when he was asked about how to improve rural security, he suggested putting up security cameras all along the roads and in neighborhoods. Um, so he, he's thinking, you know, again, very much in the context of, of his world. When he was the uh, the mayor of Bucaramanga, uh, which it's, it's important to understand is one of the higher per capita cities, so has resources to work with, his primary concern was the budget there. And he managed to sort of pull the budget Back into working condition. Um, and he's used this as a talking point against his opponent now, uh, Petro, who was the mayor of Bogota, uh, to say that, you know, he, w- he did a better job managing the accounts of, 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 of essentially the, the city. I think when we look at the track record, really what we can see is a, um, a man who has a very specific fiscal agenda. Um, but not necessarily the tools to understand how the different parts of the state are articulating together. And from what we've seen so far, at least in his campaign, a very thin layer of advisors, at least so far, who might be able to direct him how to link into these state institutions.
1: Wasn't he thrown out as mayor?
2: That's what I was just going to say. I mean, it is interesting that he did not finish his uh, term as mayor of Bucaramanga it wasn't strictly a corruption case, but he was removed because he was actively involved in politics, which in Colombia is prohibited for people who are in a public post. And he is actually currently right now facing either having to pay a really big fee or going to jail for five days. He's being accused of corruption for having given friends um, public contracts while he was mayor. So there is a case that is opened against him. Um, the possibility that this case is resolved in the courts before he gets elected, if he does, is very small. So the chances are that the case would just be suspended because sitting presidents and ex-presidents in Colombia are not uh, judged by the attorney's office, but by a special commission in the courts. Um, but it could be that he will have an open case of corruption, even though his campaign is actually based on an anti-corruption platform. He has also been a person that has been fairly openly contentious with people he doesn't like. He publicly slapped an opposition member of the council when he was mayor of Bucaramanga.
1: Like like slapped as in physically slapped
2: literally slapped him in the face Um, he was accusing the council person of of requesting uh, money in exchange for a political favor Um, the councilman has um, said that that's not the true version of the story Uh, but he's really a person that speaks of the cuff and often that gets him in trouble he once said in a radio interview that he admired hitler Um, He also said recently that he felt that women's place was in the kitchen. So he's somebody whose strict ideology, you know, he doesn't fit within what you're expecting of a politician. And I think that's both his appeal, but also what people are afraid about him, that it's really a complete uh, question mark what he would be in office.
1: And so the obvious parallel, and it's one that the newspapers in the US have drawn, is to former president trump so this is columbia's trump this big sort of social media presence and that he's run this upstart uh, campaign without a lot of funding and without much establishment support and now has captured a lot of the uh, right of center vote but is that i mean is that a is the trump parallel is that a fair one
2: I mean, I think I think it is fair in certain ways, certainly in the way in which he campaigns and certainly and especially, I think, in the way in which he's going to have a relationship with the political parties in the right, because he's very much akin as how the Republicans were sort of uncomfortable with Trump, but had no choice but to support him. And that is essentially what's happening to the right right now. I think a lot of them don't like his persona. That is rude that he sort of has no manners. His persona mortifies them, but their interests really align. I think the difference really is that um, Hernández does seem to have some, some left of center uh, points in his agenda. How much he's a believer of them or how much is this a part of his strategy to take votes out of Petro? We don't know, but he has spoken about legalization of medical and recreational marijuana. He has supported, he has spoken in support of gay rights. He has um, spoken on support of abortion rights, which were just, um, Uh, declared uh, legal by the court not long ago. Uh, He has said that he's going to invest in the countryside. He said, as Beth was mentioning, that he would start negotiations with the ELN, even though the ELN kidnapped and murdered uh, his daughter. And his father was kidnapped by the FARC. So in certain ways, it's not a very fair comparison because he seems to the left of Trump. But then he has also used very xenophobic language towards the Venezuelan immigrants. He once said that Venezuelan women were just factories that produce poor children or hungry children. So he has a mix of, of that sort of very crass populism of Trump, but uh, with some deviations more towards the classic leftist populist of Latin American history.
1: And some of those left-leaning policies that you talked about, I mean, they predate the first round, so he was running on those before the first round, or is that something that he's emphasised since last Sunday when he's now competing, you know, with with Petro, he knows he's got the right-wing voters and now he needs to centre ground as well?
2: Some of those were there before, but there really has been a very concerted and clear effort to move left since Sunday. And essentially on Monday, he did a longer thread in which he was like, make no mistake, I am not like Uribe, and I'm going to tell you why. And he listed the 12 points in which he differs from, from him. So some of those points he had mentioned, he has changed tack on certain issues, for example, fracking where he used to support it, and now he says he doesn't. And that is clearly trying to appeal to the more environmentally um, concerned people among the Petro voters. So even so, that some of of those things, I feel like some of those left-leaning impulses come from a libertarian spirit that he has. He really is concerned about uh, too big a state. And so I think in that sense, Um, We can see them as progressive, but they can also come from just a libertarian streak that he clearly has. His main concern is to reduce the cost and the presence of the state.
1: And so Fico's voters, um, so the people that cast ballots for the Federico Gutiérrez, who who came third, uh, as you say, backed in principle by Uribe, they're now likely to vote for Hernández. Uh, Gutiérrez himself has said he's going to support Hernández. Uribe's party has sort of kind of fallen into line behind him. Is, is that right? And, and is that really just out of fear of, of, of Petro, of the other candidate?
0: I think it is, and I think that this is a really important point to understand the whole context of this election, which is that uh, Petro, the again, this the left-leaning uh, former mayor of Bogotá, um, is a person who generates extremely polarized opinions in Colombia. And, and to the extent that I think there's a phenomenon here that was really what the entire first half of the election campaign was about, which was Petrophobia. For the sort of traditional elite and spe- specifically the economic elite, I think there's a lot of concern that Petro, with his reformist economic agenda, uh, would somehow uh, they would you know argue that he would take the country towards a socialist model like we've seen in Venezuela, that has been such a disaster. And we have to remember too that there are several million Venezuelan migrants in Colombia, whose example of fleeing this uh, sort of failed state next door. Weighs very heavily on the minds not just of sort of the upper class, but also um, I think many Colombians in general who feel that if there is this type of government here in Bogota, that's the fate that Colombia will suffer. Petro himself is also a polarizing personality. He he doesn't shy away from attacks. His past antagonism towards you know existing politicians and his sort of very outspoken nature generates this sort of um, polarization. But I think the other components of this and an understanding this concern about Petro really is relates a lot to the moment that we're in five years after the signing of the 2016 peace accord. I have to remember that in Colombia, there was a half century of armed conflict with leftist guerrilla insurgency that for uh, that for many reasons left a very strong stigma against the political left. Uh, They were accused of being somehow sympathetic or somehow too close or somehow even allied in some cases, um, often very incorrectly, with these guerrilla movements. And that limited the political space that they had to operate. I think Petro still suffers from the residual stigma that was attached to that. However, the difference today is the following. The difference today is that today we can talk about all the issues that were suppressed for many years politically, because there was always this existential priority of an internal conflict. No, sorry, we can't deal with inequality because we're facing an existential conflict from the FARC. No, sorry, we can't talk about the lack of education because the, the governments in Bogota might be tumbled in three days. This shadow of conflict that really limited political discourse for so long is gone. So the space to discuss these grievances and social concerns is open. The space for the left to think, to really compete in politics has opened. But what Petro suffers from is the residual effects of so many years of frustration and stigma of the left and the fact that Colombia has not had an experience of a left-leaning president for many, many decades.
1: Isn't Petro really the first sort of left-leaning politician that stood a chance of winning the presidency? And we'll come in a moment to how how good his chances are, but that at least he stood a chance of winning the presidency I mean, the first one in, as you say, decades of right of center uh, presidents and governments.
2: Yes, I mean, I think with the exception of perhaps the re-election of Juan Manuel Santos that mobilized the leftist um, sector that was supporting of the peace agreement, you're right that Colombia has leaned to the right in the political spectrum traditionally um, since really the 1940s. But I think the interesting thing of what's happening right now is that the right has no choice but to support Hernández. And really, this gives Hernández an incredible amount of power. So he feels that he has no need to do any concessions to the right. In fact, he came out on Twitter saying that Álvaro Uribe huele a picho. He smells rotten. He died three days ago, and he is already smelling rotten. And he will say that publicly, and they will still vote for him because they have no choice.
1: And again, just to recap, this is talking about a man, Alberto Uribe, who has for years sort of been the kingmaker in Colombian politics, a hugely powerful politician.
2: Exactly. So this is a, a complete upheaval, and so they. But he knows that the right is so afraid of Petro that they are going. He's going to vote for him, yes or yes. Petro, on the other hand, is been put in this very strange place for him in which he has gone from being the leftist sort of Chavez-like figure that everybody was afraid of to being like the political establishment guy who gives his um, acceptance speech uh, from the traditional hotel room with the parties and support. Meanwhile, Hernandez is speaking from his kitchen. The contrast has been very wisely used by Hernandez's campaign, which um, has in, in a couple of days just switched who the outsider is. At the same time, Petro's using the opposite logic. He is saying, I am the safe bet of change. I will uh, change things, but I am not uh, stepping to the abyss. This was completely unthinkable that this is what Petro would have been saying a week ago. It's really extraordinary.
1: And that's what he's saying, but presumably, for as you say, the establishment in Colombia, Petro is still seen as the more dangerous bet, and actually, Hernandez is seen as someone who's you know generally safer, probably less likely to rock the boat, uh, and you know he may be able to present himself as a man of the people on the street, but actually, Colombia's establishment prefer him to Petro. I mean,
2: he's a capitalist, right? So he is going to not change. That, which is the power of the economic elites, which is really what has been the traditional conservative core of the country and really the reason why so many parts of the peace process were, were not implemented, because they were going to really threaten the economic uh, be- um, status of some of those people. Um, and I think the traditional elite sees that clearly. It is going to be a big shock to the political system, though. And so in that sense, I think some of the politicians are rightly worried about what he's going to do if he is going to, as he has said, uh, eliminate a bunch of ministries, merge institutions, reduce state budgets. It's going to significantly have an impact on the way that the state has operated. But clearly, in this gamble between the political revolution and the economic revolution, the establishment is um, thinking that it's safer to go with the political revolution as long as the economics remain more
1: or less the same. And um, Pedro himself, uh, hasn't he sort of moderated as well? I mean, some of his advisors were close to President Juan Manuel Santos, from what I understand, certainly for his second term. And he got what Pedro got, just over 40% in in the first round. So, So what's his path to the presidency, to beating Hernández in the runoff?
0: This is where I think it gets quite complicated for Petro, because um, the way that he has... Risen his base of voters, he got more votes this time around than he did in the previous presidential election. When he also went to a second round, he got more votes this time than he did in the previous uh, second round. And the way that he's risen his his vote share essentially has been by selling this argument of frustration, I think, with the system. The problem now for Petro and the reason it's going to be very difficult for him to raise that ceiling of votes that he seems to have hit is because Rodolfo is is fishing in the same river of these uh, sort of particularly lower and middle class and, and sort of working class voters who just are fed up with everything. And if this was an election of Petro versus the establishment, those people would be much more likely to fall into Petro's umbrella. A great example of this is actually the city here in Bogotá, where Petro did not perform as strongly as he he expected, despite this being really the stronghold of his popularity, the place where he was the mayor, the place where during that same uh, period in office he managed to improve social programs and really implemented a number of policies for example, lowering the fares on the public bus system that were quite popular Uh, Despite that, some portion of the vote has been fielded off by Hernández What sorts of people are we talking about? We're talking about sort of a working class voter who equally frustrated, but maybe has also absorbed some of the anti-Petro sentiment, who lives next door to Venezuelans and has seen that experience and hears, you know, on the radio that Petro is going to maybe take the country in the same direction, they'll put those things together and you're looking for, you know, Hernandez is sort of the dream candidate for those people because he has all of the populist rhetoric and he doesn't carry this seemingly frightening stigma that Petro unfortunately still suffers from.
1: So basically, Hernández is pretty much the worst possible contender for, for for Petro, right? I mean, I guess quite similar to politicians in some Western countries that have been able to unite conservative establishments with a, a populist base. It can be quite a powerful winning combination.
2: I think uh, Pedro has two avenues to maybe uh, regain some of the lead that he had before the elections a couple of weeks ago. Um, one is to bring out the vote of people who didn't participate last uh, Sunday. The abstention in Colombia is always pretty high. This time it was a little bit lower, but not extremely lower. It was 45% abstention. So there is work that could be done there. And um, the one thing that Petro does have is the popular networks. He has done a lot of alliances that can also help him mobilize the vote. The, there is definite an appeal to that. the voters that didn't come out on the first round i mean obviously they're trying to appeal the center and then there is a very strong campaign to show that uh, hernandez is really an unqualified candidate to run the country that his um proposals are not well developed that he is that his instincts are wrong that he's pretending to be something that he's not. And I think that's where we're going to go for the next three weeks, trying to show Hernandez as an unqualified person that would send the country in a really difficult place. So they're going to try to appeal to people saying, look at the danger that we're facing. You guys have to go with us because this this is really an unruly really man that that we don't know what would end up doing. I mean, both of them have said in the past, although Hernández more recently, that the first thing that they would do when they got into office was to declare a state of exception so they can rule by decree rather than have to pass laws through Congress. State of exception in Latin America is usually a little bit different from state of emergency. State of emergency is used for natural disasters, and ex- state of exception is used for questions of public order and security. So it's the Constitution allows you for three months to suspend a lot of the ways in which you have to process laws, you can go into people's houses without having proper or judicial orders. The police can uh, interrogate people without necessarily having the paperwork, etc. So there, they both said that they would use that, although Petro has sort of backtracked from there. Uh, but there is that danger that they both have a little bit of um, authoritarian tendencies that could lead the country in, uh, into unknown territory. Because if if something has been traditionally a strong in Colombia, is the institutions that impose the rule of law and democratic order. Despite the war, the judicial system has always worked. The court's uh, decisions are being respected. Um, so if, if we veered from there, that would really be a break with the past. That would be very alarming.
1: And this comes after, what? Uh, parliamentary elections legislative elections a couple of months ago in which petro's party won what a plurality it won the largest block in parliament but definitely not a, a governing majority and hernandez doesn't have a party so he has uh no block in in parliament at all but presumably if he received the backing of some of the traditional parties that that would he would be able to form a block like that is that right
2: yeah, yeah, I think we assume that the people from Centro Democratico, so Uribe's party, probably LaU and other more right-wing, leaning parties would support him. Congress is fairly divided. The, the left can, if they want, join, um, and do a coalition that would be able to support Petro's agenda. But, uh, Discipline is really poor in Colombia <laughs> within the parties. There is no punishment for congressmen to vote um out of line with their own party. So it really is going to become a negotiation with each individual uh, congressperson. Uh, and it's going to be very difficult for either of them to really have majorities that are solid. Um, they're, they're going to have to be negotiating every single thing with, with Congress.
1: And so last year, there were these massive protests. Beth, you were there for, for some of them across towns and cities, you know, really countrywide. Many people on the streets for weeks, um, driven really by enormous inequality that was exposed by by the pandemic, and then police brutality that met some of those protests. So the sentiment that took people out onto the streets... That, Some of that is fueling support for Petro, but some of it, that same sentiment, presumably is fueling support for Hernández. But does he have a platform or I mean, does he have a a plan to address, let's say, the inequality or or some of the other things that people are on the streets for?
0: We think just first to say as context that this sort of explosive scenario that we had last year in which some of these grievances about a lack of social mobility um, came to the surface, is those tensions are completely unresolved essentially when you know youth and everyday colombians came to the street and said my life is horrible i don't have any opportunities there's no possibility of me for me to move forward in life they were thrown crumbs you know to students who say that I, we have no access to university here's one free semester that actually probably won't materialize you know in terms of um, you know the the tax well we will lift it for maybe 2 3 months and then it comes back um so, so this is all to say that I think that the environment in which this election is taking place is one in which the dynamics that fueled urban protests have not been addressed. They are still very much in place. And that explains, I think, this tense environment, but also, frankly, why we are where we are with the candidates. Now, Rolfo himself has said on these issues um, a number of things. I think, first, he has been outspoken about sort of his frustration with uh, the embarrassment of the level of poverty in Colombia. Um, he talks about lifting the VAT tax on food products, which is, would be extremely popular because the price of food, as elsewhere in the world, particularly with the crisis in Ukraine, has risen dramatically. He's talked about renegotiating trade deals for, econo- uh, for agricultural products with countries like the U.S., which he argues are very unfavorable to the countryside here in Colombia. He started to talk even more since advancing to the second round about developing the countryside, about providing more job opportunities. Um, So he certainly has a rhetoric that appeals to that on, on a very concrete level.
2: Yeah, they have both spoken about um, universal health. They've both spoken about accessing access to education, and they both about uh, renta básica minima, which is giving a minimum salary to every single Colombian, including seniors, even if people haven't done contributions throughout their working life. So... As Beth was saying, I think it is very clear why we have these two men running on the second round. They were the two that were paying attention to what was happening on the streets. And in a moment after the state and the political establishment in general thought that by just throwing a couple of crumbs to the protest and continuing life as he had been, a life that had led Colombia to be the second most unequal country in the continent... They thought that everything would be okay and nothing would be challenged. And clearly they were sorely mistaken. The way in which the country reacted to the protests of last year was so misguided um, that only Hernandez, in his very unique way of doing campaign through TikTok and speaking very bluntly and directly and shortly, I mean... Pedro looks really boring in comparison to the way which Hernández speaks. He really speaks to the people. He speaks to those who don't understand policy. He writes the indignation wave in a very effective way. And they read the room and nobody else read the room. And so at least, um, even if this is a very tense environment and there is a lot of unknowns, at least there is an acceptance. These are questions that need to be addressed in a significant way. Um, And so hopefully that is a good sign um, that that there will be some progress in substantial ways in which the poorest Colombians can have some uh, help from the state in making their lives better.
1: And yet, I mean, if it is Hernández, maybe he'll be different, but traditionally populists don't have a great track record at addressing the sort of grievances that they ride to power on, particularly if he's then sort of reliant on a right-wing establishment in in Colombian congress to, to to sort of get stuff done
2: yes i think it's particularly worrisome that his strategy seems to be to stop corruption and then be able to use those funds that are not being stolen to fund all of these programs which in principle yes that sounds like an amazing idea let's not create more taxes like let's just stop people from robbing but when you go into the details of how exactly it's going to happen there is absolutely no depth to those proposals and it is interesting because he has said in many occasions that he is a big admirer of, of Mexico's president uh, Manuel and- Andres López Obrador and the thing is that Amlo
1: is is left-wing right I mean he's Mexico's quite well, left-wing president In principle. In principle. (laughs) Yes, exactly.
2: In principle. (laughs) But but Amlo also came to power with this very strong anti corruption agenda. But his whole approach to it was like, I'm not going to be corrupt And I will make sure that everybody else is not corrupt, which obviously in practice is a completely silly proposal because that's not how it works. In practice, we have seen how collusion and corruption in Mexico has not been reduced. So I'm afraid that Hernandez is having that same approach, which is just if I when when people ask him for details, he'll say, I'll just call these guys and I will be like, you have to respond for this uh, stolen money. But there's. No follow-up of how exactly he would implement that at a national level. I mean, he is right. Like, during the pandemic, there was a scandal for the Ministry of um, Communications having lost an incredible amount of money that was earmarked to provide Internet access to poor children so they could uh, attend school remotely. Um, So... You know, there are so many examples of ways in which the state has completely blundered its most basic responsibilities because of corruption that, um, it is, it is very difficult to not be sympathetic with Hernandez sort of cause. But obviously, as we know, uh, eliminating corruption takes much more than just a good willing president, uh, who, who wants to be a, like a, Father figure to the country and teach them to do right instead of robbing.
1: And so, there's the corruption and, and inequality. Obviously, huge challenges for the next president. But another big challenge is the the insecurity across rural areas. You know, this this uh, terrible violence. What last year, 2021, was the most violent year since the accord with the with the FARC. Since 2016, the war with the FARC has ended, but different groups now sort of vie for influence often at huge cost for people living in the countryside. And so there was this um, big armed strike what, just before the elections by a, a former paramilitary group, uh, the, the, the Gulf Klan criminal group, that brought big chunks of the country to a standstill. What have Petro and uh, Hernández said about their policies for rural development or addressing some of the violence in rural areas?
0: So I think to start, maybe just a word about, once again, sort of where we got where we are today. So we're now five years since the signing of the peace agreement with the FARC. And what that agreement did, and and it was quite successful, was removed the single largest actor of the conflict and immediately reduced violence in a number of rural areas. The indicators just fell from the ceiling. Um, We're talking about homicides, displacement, all the things that we would traditionally look to to understand the dynamics of a conflict. Unfortunately, what has happened since is um, unlike the idea of the agreement, which was for the state to with its services, with its police and security presence to sort of fill in those areas territorially where the FARC used to occupy. We're talking about a solid 22 percent of the country. And what has happened instead is that other armed groups, both new and old, have proven themselves more agile, more interested um, and frankly, more effective at controlling those areas in occupying those communities, retaking trafficking routes, reactivating uh, the economy for uh, coca the base um, used to make cocaine of arms trafficking of human trafficking um, and so what we 've seen really in a number of rural areas is not so much the end of a conflict but a complete re- reconfiguration of violence today, the conflict is not a guerrilla insurgency it's a it 's a fragmented atomized conflict that pits dozens and dozens of different groups that operate on the local level, really uh, with a logic of controlling individual parts of the illicit economy, um, and a state that really hasn't figured out how to respond. As a result of that, the levels of violence have slowly ticked upward. And what we've seen, particularly since the beginning of 2022, is armed groups trying to take advantage of this a situation of insecurity and uncertainty around the political transition that they clearly sense and have been able to capitalize upon. Now, this armed strike that you mentioned, I think, was a really visible demonstration of this. This group, um, the Gulf clan, has its roots in former paramilitary organizations, but today operates and even describes itself as a private army in the service of drug trafficking. That is how they describe themselves. And what is it exactly? It is exactly that. It is a private army that has occupied, in this case, um, almost a third of the entire Colombian north, stretching all the way from the Pacific coast to the border with Venezuela. Um, They operate in these communities. They instill rules in these communities. There are curfews. There are restrictions on movement. They decide who's in charge. And this is a reality that has been invisible. And what this armed strike did was make it visible and really it remind all of Colombia the extent to which security has deteriorated. And it's really a reminder of the dramatic challenge that the next president is going to face because it's not just the Gulf Clan. There's also two different branches of so-called FARC dissident groups. There's the ELN. There's dozens and dozens of individual delinquent and criminal organizations that operate in cities. This is a situation that requires a serious response. And unfortunately, what we've seen from... Frankly, both candidates, certainly more Hernandez, uh, but still to an extent with Petro, we don't know what their response is to deal with these groups. We have not heard a plan to, de- de- to deal with the security situation. And going into the second round of the election and then the transition period to a new administration, this brings a lot of risks because, again, armed groups have proven themselves very adept at seeing an opportunity and grasping it.
1: Tell us a little bit I mean, what happened during the, this, um, the armed strike. How did uh, the Gulf Clan bring cities to a standstill? And where, what, it, was, um, it was all the, the cities along the northern coast or it was just sort of smaller towns?
0: So, so we're talking about 12 departments, uh, primarily along the Atlantic coast. These are areas where the Gulf Clan has a present, e- presence, either permanent or sort of moving in and out. And so what they did um, was uh, announced a strike on the 5th of May through a number of pamphlets, but also going door to door. We heard in rural areas where they advised residents that for the following four days, they were not to leave their homes, they were not to transit roads, shops were not to open, schools were to remain closed, and anyone who broke those orders uh, would face the consequences. And that's exactly what we saw. Um, it was remarkable. Two mid-sized cities, these are not small places, Since Alejo and Monteria, along the Atlantic coast were entirely shut down. There was no transport within several departments of Colombia for four days and because this group wields such a high level of control that even the military didn't dare to patrol in many of these areas. Um, the result of that, Obviously, in those four days, you know, small towns ran out of food, they ran out of supplies, schools were closed. Obviously, there's this uh, traumatic factor of the fear that it instilled. Um, But the reality is that these communities already live under those conditions on a daily basis. That's an embarrassment in a country like Colombia, a middle-income country, that the state cannot stop an armed group from shutting down a third of the country And I think that it hasn't really risen to that level politically, but it's going to have to in the next administration because the extent of the threat is that grave.
1: Was the strike uh, linked to the vote, to the election?
0: So the strike was called specifically in response to the extradition of a captured leader of the group, Otoniel, to the United States. However, there were implications for the elections in the sense that this group specifically harassed voters and activists of the Petro campaign, And generally, it seems, sought to suppress the vote.
2: I think it's also um, important to know, Richard, that first, while the uh, strike was happening, um, there was quite an upheaval. Uh, People were protesting a lot because the army was clearly not responding in even a similar way to which they responded to the strikes uh, in the cities in 2019, which immediately were faced with very strong military response while the Clan del Golfo essentially paralyzed a third of the country for several days. And the country sent literally 23 men was the first uh, group of of, uh, soldiers that they sent. So uh, people were quite uh, furious about the lack of response uh, from Duque which only got worse when he went uh, in um, in a conference in Europe when he was uh, giving um, a press interview, and he said that actually the Clan del Golfo did not exist anymore, that the Clan del Golfo had been completely dismantled. It also explains why the candidate that it was seen as the continuation of that, which was FICO, was openly rejected in areas that had been a stronghold for Uriismo until now these sectors that had always been a little bit right wing for many decades were like are you kidding me like you don't like a you deny that this is happening and b you clearly have no interest in mobilizing the army to help us when the situation is at its worst
1: and so part of the response to the insecurity in rural areas is as you talk about the role of the army the role of the security forces in providing security in a better way and but part of it is also some of the reforms that were laid out in the in the peace deal with the FARC, um, and that Duque's government has sort of sat on and, and and not moved forward with, for the for the most part. What has Hernandez said about uh, rural reform and, and rolling out some of what the government agreed to in the deal with the FARC?
2: I mean, he has said specifically that he would invest in the countryside. That was one of the points that he made clearing history to the threat of of Sunday. Part of the peace process was the creation of these local development plans in those areas that had been most seriously affected by conflict. But he has not made any specific um, allusion to those or how those will be implemented. And again, there is a little bit of a contradiction between his desire to both develop economically the areas, but also to politically support participation of the opposition with his very clear interest in not spending too much money because these are very costly plans, which partially, not, not exclusively, but the very high cost that they have have meant that they have not been implemented. Um, I think the part of the agreement that you will move forward with is the, the coca eradication and sort of, going from forced eradication into a voluntary substitution plan. He does seem to signal that he wants to legalize recreational and uh, medicinal use of marijuana.
1: Marijuana, though, not...
2: Yeah, marijuana. I don't want to call it a drug policy because it's not really anywhere as as neatly as a, a real drug policy, but that he does seem to be inclined to move away from the very sort of hardline restrictive use of drugs and uh, punishment for coca cultivation uh, that that previous governments has had. He has said that he wants to treat drug use as a public health problem and not an internal security problem, which is a positive sign. And I think he would probably want to move into ending fumigation and ending forced eradication uh, and trying to put um, his money into the voluntary substitution. That said, he would need to have the United States on his side for that. And uh, that is not going to be necessarily straightforward, particularly if he gets into a confrontation with Washington over things, for example, uh, as the recognition of of President Maduro in Venezuela over Juan Guaidó. But it, it, it does seem that he is at least a little bit interested. Just like a few
0: points to add. I mean, I think the first one is to just um, it's important to note that the peace deal was not a campaign issue. It has not been a campaign issue which is important because it sort of signals that there is sort of a broad understanding that this is now part of state policy, not any individual government policy. No, not in every way, and certainly there are exceptions to that, and there are certain parts of the agreement that are always going to be more politically convenient to implement than others, but the peace accord and the idea of particularly transitional justice, demobilization, that is no longer controversial, which is a positive thing about this election. Having said that, when we look at the track record of both candidates historically vis-a-vis the accord, Petro voted yes on the referendum that was held um, throughout the country to approve or disapprove of the agreement. Uh, Rodolfo voted no. Now, he has since said that he will continue to implement the agreement, but he has also unfortunately shown indications that he may not fully understand um, what the agreement includes. There are just basics of the agreement that I think is clear the candidate does not understand. What that basically tells us is that this is a black box. We don't know what he will do with regard to the agreement. So it's easy to say he will implement it, but I think going through sort of the list of all the different programs and laws and and ideas that are included in the agreement that, again, at Crisis Group, we feel are so fundamental to uh, rewriting why conflict has always been so sticky in Colombia. uh, We just don't know where Hernández sits on those things.
1: And so uh, we talk about foreign powers. uh, I mean, we can start with the U.S., obviously hugely influential in Colombia I think Colombia, what the US is, one of the US's closest allies in the hemisphere, very close ties to, to, to the army, obviously important because of US drug policy. So um, I mean, not, not great options, I guess, is how Washington, I assume, is viewing things.
0: It was said to me recently that both the Colombian military and the United States are not political, but they are anti petra And I think that summarizes the sentiment. That uh, within both the Colombian military here, there is a deep fear of what Petro would mean for their ranks. And I think the same thing can be said about the U.S., uh, particularly because of these potential changes on drug policy. Now, if they're looking at Hernández's program, they should have the same fears with regard to him. But I think for many of the reasons we discussed with Petrophobia within Colombia, that same phenomenon affects the US political establishment. Um, now, having said that, the US has made some, uh, what I would say are really positive statements and movements recently. Um, they have uh, tweeted and made public statements, um, really emphasizing the idea that this is a free election and, of course, independent, and the voters' will will be respected. They have called for calm and tranquility in a moment of tension for the country, so they've, they've said all the right things publicly. I imagine that they're scrambling just like the rest of us to understand what Hernández would mean to them, but their inclination would be, my sense, is more towards his campaign than that of Petro, where they know that they are likely to clash on certain issues.
1: What about on the Venezuelan crisis? I mean, is there much difference between Petro and Hernández? I know Petro has said that he'll recognize the Maduro government rather than recognizing his president, opposition politician Juan Guaidó, who the Colombian government. Now Duque's government recognizes as president, along with the the, the US and several other governments. So what has Hernández said about relations with Venezuela, with Nicolás Maduro?
2: Well, what Hernández has said is that he is going to start consular relations with um, Venezuela. So he hasn't said anything specifically about Maduro or Guaido yet. And this is the same thing that FICO had said. And this is guided by an economic logic over a political logic. Essentially, business between the two countries obviously has been disrupted, and the humanitarian crisis in the border has been uh, incremented. Terribly by the lack of relationships. There's no communication between the two countries, with some informal exceptions between uh, the border states and the local governments. But in general, it has really been bad for the economy, but also for the situation of those migrants uh, moving from Venezuela to Colombia and the other way around. When when it happens occasionally, so he has said that he is going to restart um, the the relation, the consular relations.
1: But isn't, sort of this, isn't this sort of the way the wind is blowing in general, though? I mean, uh, since the crisis in Ukraine, kind of wanting to get Venezuelan oil going again, US diplomats have met more senior levels of the Maduro government than, you know, than they have for some time. Uh, many foreign powers are sort of moving away and see the support of Guaido as, as having failed. I mean, isn't this just sort of a, 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 a new reality that both Petro and Hernandez are working in now?
2: Well, we think, but the Americans have really backtracked from that initial approaching the Maduro government, uh, in part because the reaction from Republicans and a few Democratic leaders has made them think that really doing any clear signaling that they're going to recognize Maduro would cost them politically in Florida. So... The giving of the licenses to Chevron or other oil companies have been really much slower than what we anticipated after the visit to Caracas. Uh, and the pushback from Republicans and some Democrats has really been strong. So for now, the clear talking point uh, coming out of Washington is that why though is the president and, and that's who the, the country is recognizing and the whole, um, sort of chaos around the America Summit next week in LA and who's coming and who's not coming uh, clearly shows that there is a lot of ambivalence. Neither one has been invited officially, neither Guaidó nor Maduro. What is interesting though is that uh, one would assume that Maduro would be happier with Petro in the presidency because he would restart um, proper uh, diplomatic relationships and it's somebody who is ideologically at least more akin to, to Maduro's project. But it's clearly not necessarily the case for two reasons. One, Petro has been fairly critical of Maduro in public and Maduro has been not happy with that. Uh, people close to him has told us that he really does not like when criticisms come from the left. He can dismiss the criticisms from the U.S. or Duque in a way that, you know, those are the enemy. But like when it comes from, from allies, um, it hits him closer. But also because it has been very useful for Maduro politically to have um, an enemy uh, besides the US. And Duque has very much been that. And Colombia has been politically very useful for Maduro to rally the forces uh, against what it's seen as a unnecessary aggression from Colombia. So if Petro changes the cards in that way, he will lose some of the tools that he has been using politically internally. I do think that having a country next door that is not trying to um, officially uh, kick you out of government probably will be in the long term beneficial, and Maduro would find a way to work with Petro. But it has been interesting that, that the signals coming out of Caracas are not openly enthusiastic for, for Petro.
1: And what about more broadly in the region? What you have, AMLO, uh, Lopez Obrador, that we talked about in Mexico. Uh, so, in principle, a left-wing populist, though, you know, as you implied, Renati, doesn't always look so so progressive, even if he is uh, still very popular. You have a new left-wing government in Chile, uh, in Brazil, potentially quite difficult elections this November, but a real chance that Jair Bolsonaro, sort of unambiguously right-wing populist, but a real chance he's ousted by former president Ignacio Silva, by, by Lula. So what are the two... Colombian candidates, Petro Hernández, what do they potentially mean for this, this polarization that has defined Latin American politics over recent years?
2: Yes, I mean, I think uh, everybody was sort of counting with a Petro win to shift of the regional balance, both on the Venezuela question, but in general, if Lula wins in Brazil, like we're expecting in November, and Petro was to win in Colombia then there will be a coalition of countries that are not sort of the more hardcore left uh, problematic countries like Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba. So the hope was that this new alliance could bring both fresh air into the negotiations around the Venezuelan crisis. Uh, With Hernández, it's very unclear how that would stand. I mean, I think in some ways he is a pragmatic man and he would like to see stronger economic and diplomatic relations in the region. But I think he's also somebody that is looking inward more than outward and that clearly he has said that he's going to close around 27 embassies and use the money to pay student debt. So he doesn't think diplomacy or foreign relations are very important. So I don't think that he is going to become, if he gets elected, like a regional leader that people will be looking forward. I think in that sense, he is more like Trump, a kind of America first, Colombia first uh, person that, that really will prioritize internal policies over foreign relations.
1: Can I uh, end, uh, Beth, Renata, by pushing you a bit on, on what this vote could mean for, for, for Colombia? I mean, on the one hand, let's say it's Hernández. Clearly, as we talked about, he's an outsider. There's an element of unpredictability, a, a, an element of the unknown. And yet, if he's relying to some degree on the traditional establishment, maybe he won't want to rock the boat so much. And then, you know, on the other hand, if it's Petro, are there also some restraints? I mean some of the opposition he's going to encounter, so some restraints on on how he might govern. So the question is, is the change after the vote going to be as seismic as it seems, what, what, two weeks before the runoff?
2: I mean, I think it's going to be seismic regardless of who wins. Both of the options are really a break with the way in which politics have worked in Colombia since the war, since 1957, uh, if we don't want to go... Uh, even since the foundation of the country, which really has been around traditional political parties, very established uh, political figures that have led the way forward, and and really these are two men that are coming um, to the second round, not based on those traditional clientelistic networks, not really based on big political parties that are the ones doing the work, but really on opinion vote. So this is it's seismic in the way that is going to change the way in which politics have worked in the country, for sure. Um, It might be seismic in If Petro comes, probably more because of the um, economic changes that he's hoping to do and because of the resistance of the economic and political elites uh, to his agenda. I mean, there is no question that if Petro wins, there is going to be capital flight the next day. There are multiple clauses in multinational contracts that um, allow the money to live and the contracts to be void if Petro wins. Um, there is a very uh, clear fear from the wealthier um, sectors in Colombia that are going to react to a Petro win by immediately closing lines against him. And that confrontation is going to be very difficult. In that way, an Hernández presidency might be perhaps less chaotic in its confrontation with the traditional forces, uh, as Beth was saying, uh, with the military forces. But I think he is a man that is really working outside of all of the patterns that we're used to. And he will surprise people in multiple ways. He's not going to try to appease the traditional political parties or the leaders of the people that have joined behind him. So he can be seismic in that really it might be all based on what he wants to do on a given day. Um, And that is something that really will throw off um, the the political system. I think the other way that this,
0: I mean, this this result and this vote could really um, be decisive, let's say, in terms of the direction of the country, is in how these candidates confront the risks that they're absolutely going to be faced with. And I'll just flag one right now, which is right after the second round vote, which, you know, we have raised concerns and we were very glad that to be wrong on the first round of the election about um, the public believing in the in the reliability of the electoral system, that they're um, not challenging the result. Um, We are very concerned still that either candidate could take the opportunity to claim fraud. This is in part because of errors that were made in the congressional elections that were later corrected, but that really did give the appearance that the regulatory body that manages election did not have its act together. Now, they've made changes that I think what we've seen so far seem to have worked. The candidates in the first round all accepted that result. But this remains a risk for the second round. That's just sort of step one. When the new President takes office, they're going to be immediately faced by very high expectations on all level. The mandate that either candidate will have in office is to tear this house down. The level of indignation with again this closed political class is so high that there will be a very strong expectation to um, you know show results economically, to provide sort of um, solutions to these social frustrations to show concrete results in targeting corruption. That's going to be a very strong expectation of the population that I think could easily reignite into another cycle of protest if it isn't listened to. Then simultaneous to that, we have all the threats of security that we discussed in the countryside that will inevitably suck some of the energy and attention um, out of all the rest of governance. And that's a reality that I think the candidates are going to have to face and how they do so will absolutely define the way that we go for the next four years and I think far beyond that.
1: Beth, Renata, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you
0: for having us. Great to be
1: here. Thanks. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on Colombia, on Latin America, on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. Thanks to our producers, Sam Mednick, Kevin Murphy, Finn Johnson. And thanks, of course, to all of you, to all our listeners. Please do get in touch. You can write to me directly at word at crisisgroup.org or use our general address, podcast at crisisgroup.org, if you have any questions or comments. If you like the show, please do leave us a positive rating or review. And I very much hope you'll join us again next week. And we'll leave you with another one from the TikTok King.
2: Estamos melos. Sí,